You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome in to Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take a deep dive on three topics that Jay and I find interesting, and we're betting that you may just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You will soon be the smartest person at the party. On this edition of Commute. For some, its existence may be a punchline, but for Microsoft, it's something much more than that. How has the search engine Bing managed to stick around all these years despite being so far behind Google? Deep in the side of an icy mountain, just above the Arctic Circle, there's a vault that is vital to the future of humanity. It doesn't guard money, coal, or the essential oils that your neighbor has been trying to sell you. No, no, no. It guards something much more important, a bunch of seeds. From an outdoorsy retailer to a status symbol among teens with a few controversies in between, we examine the constant reinvention of the clothing brand Abercrombie & Fitch. I like girls that wear Abercrombie. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So Dave, I've known you for a long time, and um, one of the things that I know about you is that you have really an extreme and kind of irrational distaste for the search engine Bing. So uh, let's let's hear it. Why? Do, what do you got against Bing? I'm not going to lie. I really thought you were going to say, which would have also fit here, that I have an irrational hate for off-brands. Because to me, I think Bing that's the root the, of this. It yeah. is. Bing is the off brand of Google. And so I, it's funny you're doing this segment because I didn't know you were going to do this segment when I heard this last week. I just heard last week that the most searched word on Bing is Google. Well, you'll really like it when I tell you what the second most searched word on Bing is. It's even funnier. Well, Dave, it may upset you to hear, but you know, Bing is not just the butt of a joke. And It never really has been, and although, yes, the search engine is not as widely used as Google, it still enjoys a pretty strong level of financial success, and you may actually be using it in ways that you don't even realize. Now, as has been widely reported, and as you just said, the top search term on Bing is actually Google, followed by misspellings of Google, like goggle. (laughs) (laughs) But despite that, Bing is a cash cow for Microsoft. In 2009, Bing was launched to compete with Google directly, so the search engine has survived for over 10 years and shows no signs of slowing down. In fact, Dave, one-third of all U.S. internet searches use Bing. And like Google, they sell ads on their platform to the highest bidder. 1.3 billion users a month means major cash flow. In fact, Dave, in 2020, Bing made Microsoft $7.7 billion and has a 2.7% market share of the search engine market. And while that doesn't sound like a lot, and it's really not, Google, by contrast, owns 91.95% of that market. It still puts Bing squarely in second place as the most used search engine behind Google. So then how does Bing rake in so much money? Well, first of all, Bing utilizes the power of defaults. 
82% of the world's computers run on Windows, and people don't typically just get in and change their default settings. And in the case of a Windows computer, the default search engine is Bing. And Microsoft even recruited Apple to make Bing the default search engine of their voice recognition software, Siri, in 2013, a move that Google countered and still counters by sending a $3 billion annual check to Apple to make Google the default search engine for Siri. The voice system of Microsoft called Cortana uses Bing by default. And the Xbox, also a Microsoft product, uses Bing to search the internet. And on top of that, Microsoft Office products and Microsoft Teams use Bing by default as well. So unless we all stop using Microsoft products, which, let's be honest, we won't, people will never stop using Bing. But Dave, the big thing here, the goldmine, is the data. The data generated by Bing is valuable, and many companies are willing to pay top dollar to advertise to a specific data-driven subset of potential customers. Microsoft has also really tapped into a certain age demographic as well. 54% of Bing users are over the age of 45, 50% have college degrees, 46% are married, and a third have a household income of over $100,000. So advertisers come running to sell their products that may appeal to certain groups within those demographic ranges. And internationally, Bing is growing. 11 billion searches take place every month around the world on Bing. And half a million advertisers who sell their products on Bing also seem to gain a higher return on their investment on Bing over Google. According to Mark Irvine in an article for WordStream, Bing had an almost 50% higher ad click-through rate than Google. Bing's average cost per click is 33% lower than Google's, and the average cost to acquire a customer was about 30% lower on Bing than on Google. So Dave, putting all this together, despite your distaste for Bing, the search engine is here to stay. Microsoft made the smart decision to keep this service alive by weaving it into the fabric of their more widely used products to essentially drive the use of the search engine when it may have failed just on its own. Well, I actually don't like monopolies, so I do like that uh, a competitor <laughs> for Google exists. I, I really do. You heard I it like here first. Something. Dave Traub is very squarely anti-monopoly. <laughs> sounded much more serious than uh, I meant it to be. Now, while you were talking, I did intentionally misspell Google just to see what would come up if I searched for it, and I'm pretty sure my computer now has a virus. I do not recommend looking up goggle.com. Don't do it. Jay, not going to lie to you, man. I was kind of shocked when I found out about this next thing. Okay, now this is legitimately... The kind of information I envisioned us sharing on this show when we started Commute about, it's hard to believe, nine months ago. Today, we are going to talk about the Doomsday Vault. Now, before I dive into this, what is your end-of-world preparation? What does it look like? Do you have a bunker in the backyard? Do you have a huge supply closet with canned goods, lots of guns? Well, as has been previously established on this show, I am an Eagle Scout, so I have uh, quite a bit of knowledge up here about how to survive. I thought you were saying, so I have quite a bit of knots. <laughs> I mean, I can tie some knots. I don't know how helpful they will actually be uh, in this type of situation. 
Uh, you know, as far as the guns category goes, definitely lacking in that. Uh, canned food, I got a little bit. You do have a gun, though. And, and in fact, it's the world's <laughs> smallest gun. Jay owns the smallest gun I've ever actually seen. Also, so my wife loves this. When the pandemic hit... Uh, the first time I went to Kroger, okay, so COVID had been going for a while. I hadn't been to the grocery store actually in person for a long time, and it was really eerie. You know, like we weren't used to masks. Everyone's kind of staying away from each other. And so before I left the store, I'm not making this up. I kid you not. I had a little panic moment. And so I was about to check out. I circled back to the canned goods, and I got one single can of tomato soup. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you put it behind some glass, like break in case of emergency. Well, Jay, deep in the Arctic Circle, located just between Norway and the North Pole, you know, where Santa lives, there's a facility that houses something that could be essential to the future of the human race. This facility houses 930,000 varieties of food crops. Yes, Jay, this top-secret vault houses a ton of seeds. The Doomsday Vault, actually named the Global Seed Vault, which is not nearly as cool, puts images into your head as maybe that last resource that will save all of us in the case of an apocalyptic event or a global catastrophe. Well, in fact, Jay, it's the smaller localized threats to crops that happen every day around the world that the Seed Vault was created to combat. The exact location of the vault is in a place called Svalbard, a remote location that was chosen because of the icy, white nothingness that surrounds it. It's away from the places on Earth where you have war and terror. Everything maybe you are afraid of in other places. It's situated in a very safe place. Bente Novardal, a property manager who oversees the day-to-day operation of the vault, told Time Magazine. The entrance to the vault feels like something straight out of an episode of Lost a small tunnel filled with electricity and HVAC systems that regulate the temperature of the facility. All of this leads to a tunnel that goes 430 feet down into a mountainside, leading to a large vault with doors that protect all of the seeds. And Jay, the vault is so important because our world is constantly and dramatically changing. Just over the past 50 years, The agricultural practices of the world have changed so much that now only about 30 crops provide 95% of all human food energy needs. In just the United States, we've lost over 90% of our fruit and vegetable varieties since the 1900s. The seeds lying in the deep freeze of this vault include wild and old varieties, many of which are not in general use anymore. And many don't even exist outside of the seed collections that they came from, all submitted to the vault. Jay, what's perhaps most fascinating about this vault that actually exists, it still blows my mind that this exists, is that the vault stands as an unusual and hopeful representation of international cooperation. The vault surpasses all the current world tensions and uncertainty. It simply exists for the common good of mankind. Any country can submit seeds to the vault, and there are no restrictions on submissions based on politics. The seeds don't care that there are North Korean seeds and South Korean seeds in the same aisle. Brian Lanoff, lead partnerships coordinator of the Crop Trust, which runs the vault, told Time Magazine, they are cold and safe up here in the vault. 
and that's all that really matters. And you know, the Seatbelt, it's not really that old. I mean, it was only created in 2008, so it's kind of, um, we're in like new territory with stuff like this, right? And it almost makes me think of like the International Space Station, right? And like people go up to the International Space Station, you can come from any country, you can come up and work together, and oftentimes you'll have different people of different countries going up together, running missions together, and all the political and, uh, you know, tension and stuff like that sort of dissolves when you're up in space and you're working on something together. So the great uniting fronts, space and seeds. So Dave, growing up, I wasn't really like a huge Abercrombie and Fitch guy. I mean, it was a pretty, really popular brand whenever I was in high school, especially, um, were you into Abercrombie and Fitch? Did you uh, wear the wear the polos and hit the cologne and do that whole I thing? I love how you asked that with a straight face. I can see you, and you already knew the answer. Of course I was an Abercrombie and Fitch guy. <laughs> of course. Everything about me screams that I was an Abercrombie and Fitch wearer. Now, I learned about Abercrombie and Fitch, like most people did, through the popular boy band LFO with the song Summer Girls. I like girls that wear Abercrombie and Fitch. But I remember one Christmas, that's all I wanted was an Abercrombie and Fitch shirt. My mom got me a long sleeve blue Abercrombie and Fitch shirt. It was incredible. I wore it probably three <laughs> times a week. Well, I um, just remember the brand was absolutely huge, uh, especially in the mid 2000s. It was a status symbol among people who were young uh, and cool. it doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't really, that's, yeah, that's why I wasn't wearing it a whole lot. But that's kind of had six packs. Yeah, that's definitely another strike. Uh, but uh, but yeah, like uh, I don't really see people wearing it a lot today, right? And so I was kind of wondering what happened to Abercrombie and Fitch. This topic was suggested by my friend Will White because uh, he mentioned to me off the cuff that Abercrombie and Fitch used to be sort of like a Cabela's, <laughs> and I was like, "What are you talking about?" So I did my research on it, and uh, man, the company has a really interesting history on how it's evolved. So Abercrombie and Fitch was actually founded in 1892, and yeah, it was an outdoor retailer store that sold hunting and fishing gear. The 12 story department store in New York City sold outdoor clothing, had a shooting range, and a golf school. The business was also supported by a strong mail order catalog base, something like 50,000 customers. Uh, The company logged $6.3 million in sales in 1929. And it dipped a little during the Great Depression, but it managed to survive and thrive throughout the 40s and 50s. Famous outdoorsmen and patrons like Ernest Hemingway and Teddy Roosevelt and JFK were known to shop there over the decades. And the company even outfitted Charles Lindbergh for his famous 1927 transatlantic flight. But as the 1960s dawned, the company began to show signs of decline. In 1967, the company actually took a loss of a million dollars and never really took advantage of new advertising methods like television. Due to this steady loss, the company actually filed for bankruptcy and was acquired by Oshman Sporting Goods in 1978 and then acquired again by Limited Brands in 1988, who refocused the company on apparel. The headquarters were moved from New York to Ohio, and in 1992, new CEO Mike Jeffries began to turn the attention of Abercrombie & Fitch to the teen retail market. 
The company hired photographers to take racy photos of young models wearing Abercrombie apparel to use in advertisements in an attempt to rebrand the company, and, well, it worked. Uh, when Jeffries took over, Abercrombie and Fitch had 36 stores and was making $50 million in sales. And by 1996, when it went public, the company had 125 stores and sales of $335 million. And in 1998, Abercrombie launched clothing lines for younger children and launched its subsidiary called Hollister in 2000. So brand recognition took off, and by 2012, the company had 1,000 locations with an annual sales of $4.5 billion. And the rise has not been without speed bumps, though. In 2003, a class action lawsuit was filed against the company for discriminatory hiring practices against African Americans, Asian Americans, and other minorities. According to the lawsuit, managers of the stores were told to deny any applicants who didn't fit a certain look or profile. In 2004, Abercrombie settled to the tune of $40 million and updated its hiring guidelines. And then in another lawsuit, you'll love this one, Dave, a former pilot sued Jeffries himself over strange flight practices aboard flights on his private jet, which included requiring male models to wear only Abercrombie <laughs> polos and underwear and white gloves when setting the table. <laughs> And this lawsuit, which was really labeled gloves. under, it was labeled white under, a, yeah, no, and it was black gloves for other things and white gloves for setting the table. It's very specific. <laughs> Technically, the lawsuit was labeled as age discrimination, and it was ultimately settled out of court as well. In 2006, Jeffries came under fire again for public comments on physical appearance, and I'm quoting him here. He says, that's why we hire good-looking people in our stores, because good-looking people attract other good-looking people, and we want to market to cool, good looking people. We don't market to anyone other than that. So he said this in response to the longtime criticism that Abercrombie excluded larger sizes in its product lines. And in 2013, Jeffrey sort of issued like a half apology and the brand began offering larger sizes. So sales began to steadily decline from 2008 on, due in part to the controversies, but more so because youth were changing. Many young people began to ditch expensive brands like Abercrombie in favor of more athletic wear like Nike. In 2014, Jeffries retired from his role as CEO, and in recent years, the company has attempted a comeback. Large logos were replaced with smaller, more subtle ones, shirtless male greeters and dimly lit stores with loud music and thick cologne smell were replaced with brighter stores and workers who had more flexibility on what they could wear. The company began offering clothes that targeted older customers that used ad campaigns much less aggressive than ones in the past. And the company hired a new CEO, closed failing stores. And in 2018, Business Insider named Abercrombie & Fitch the biggest retail comeback of 2018. As with most retailers, though, the coronavirus pandemic slowed the growth of the company. But the brand is in much more successful of a place today due really mainly, Dave, to their ability to adapt and change with the times. You weren't kidding about those racy photos. So I think the last thing I ever got from Abercrombie, it's funny, the first thing I ever got from Abercrombie and the last thing I ever got from Abercrombie were Christmas gifts from my mother. The last one was I really wanted a tie. And this is when everybody was wearing those ties that had a cutoff at the bottom, like it wasn't a normal tie, it was almost like a sock. <laughs> and so I, I wanted this tie really bad. And so she said, well, send me the link. And so I, I just sent her the link. I didn't really look at the webpage. And so apparently uh, the webpage had a male model wearing the tie 
and nothing else. <laughs> How about Charlie Lindbergh, though, wearing the clothes? He's rocking that, that Abercrombie and Fitch while he's flying into France. You know, I, I have a, a quick funny story about the, the hiring thing. Whenever I was, uh, you know, Hollister, which was kind of like a, it was it was a partner of Abercrombie and Fitch, and it, uh, it followed a lot of the same kind of playbook. Like the store was very similar. Uh, one summer, I was going around looking for jobs, so I went to the mall and started looking for applications and kind of going up and down the stores, putting in applications at every one. And so I go into Hollister, I hear them kind of talking, like the workers kind of talking to other people, telling them that they're hiring. So I go around, I like, you know, pretend to shop, whatever. I kind of like go up to the front. I'm like, hey, I'm kind of like uh, looking around, maybe applying to some places, kind of wondering if you guys were hiring. And uh, they were like, oh, we're not hiring right now. You're like a fine wine, <laughs> though. You look much, you look good now. Like they, they made a mistake. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they went out of business. So ultimately, like who really won? And that's it. Shame on you, Abercrombie, for not hiring a young Jay Sisson. But thank you for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to please rate, subscribe, and review to commute on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Check us out on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. Do you actually know anybody who uses Bing? Uh, really, only one person. It's a, a coworker of mine. His name's Trevor, and he's an English teacher at the school that I uh, teach at. Uh, but I think the only reason he uses it is, from what I understand, you can go on to Bing every day and answer some multiple choice questions and like search some certain things. And if you do these things. Uh, I guess like Bing gives you points and then at a certain point you can redeem your points for like gift cards or something. So Bing basically like pays people to use it, I guess. And uh, I guess he's fallen into that trap. Trevor, my man, (laughs) getting called out.